continuing on with our look at the message that Christ gave us in all ages at the Sermon on the Mount. I was asked if I had a handout. Well, I purposely didn't prepare a handout because I wanted to prove that Canadians don't always have handouts. <laughs> Apparently it was almost identifiable with the breed from the north that you got a handout. Well, I want to break that tradition. Besides that, uh, I never have anything prepared far enough that I had that I could make a handout, uh, which is to my shame. We're continuing looking at the vital messages that Jesus gave during that Sermon on the Mount. In preparation or preparing the minds of his followers that they might be a people that would be pleasing unto his Father, reflecting his personalities and characteristics, and in turn reflecting, as it were, the divine, which is a, a tremendously lofty concept. We were discussing yesterday the 42nd verse, we said again that to truly understand where Jesus was coming from in a lot of the illustrations that he uses, we must remember them in light of Jewish tradition. And we'll come to some of these today. The verse that we wish to start with this morning is the 43rd of the 5th chapter. Ye have heard it you have heard that it hath been said, Ye shall love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. You remember that we said that in the seven places where Jesus quoted that it had been, or the, pardon me, the six places where it had been said that phraseology. It was often quoting the tradition, and this is a prime sample of it. See, that you'll search as you will. You will not find in the law where it says to hate your enemies. But if you look at Leviticus 19 and 2, you will see, as Jesus had pointed out later in his teachings, that the essence of the law, and it's stated in the 19th, chapter of Luke uh, again in Exodus one of these days I'll distinguish between them Leviticus 19 and 2 ye shall be holy for the Lord your God is holy no that's not the one how would it be if we get over the... Right, thank you. 
For thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, for thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. The concept of hating one's enemy it was an interpretation that the various schools of thought of the Jewish people had embellished the law with. Now, Jesus in this account that he's speaking of and the attitude that his disciples must have, he said, but I tell you to love your enemies, bless them that curse you, and do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Now, you remember that early in the first lesson we pointed out that Robert Roberts, in his book on the Nazareth Revisited book, said that this concept of loving one's enemies and those that despitefully used you so elevated the whole of mankind that mercy and consideration became vogue where before it was unheard of. Now we sometimes fail to realize the influence of Christ's teachings on the world. We tend to think that we have an exclusive well, we may have the truth from the point of view of salvation, but the benefits that have accrued to mankind as a result of this man's teachings has been that it has been the betterment of mankind. And this was the point that Robert Roberts was making. You know, it, it was absolutely inconceivable in the minds of many men to love one's enemy. But who really is the benefactor of loving one's enemy? You see, if your enemy is bent on destroying you, and he's saying all manner of evil and foul things about you, it's not likely by you praying for him and blessing him and loving him that you're in any way going to change him. Not likely. But we'll come back to that point. The benefit, of course, is on the one who is able to discipline his mind and control his emotions to the point where he can muster up the courage to make an effort to understand and have compassion on this one that might be in the bowels of great tumult, his enemy. You see, the benefit that accrues to the one who is extending the love to his enemy is the real benefactor. This isn't a new thought. It's something that you're well aware of. But sometimes we forget it. Now, if you look at verse 45 you'll see something there that I think is very significant in relation to this principle it's a continued thought to the fact that you should extend love and bless them that curse you and do good to them that hate you 
that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. Now what does that make you think back to? Does it not make you think back to verse 9 of this chapter? Where he said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Now in the concept of making peace, we said that it involved our making peace with God. But the spillover of that kind of a benefit is that it makes us at peace too. You cannot have peace unless you are at peace. Now that may be circular reasoning, but it's a premise. If you can muster the courage that you can adopt a position where your thoughts are not reciprocal to your enemies, then you can be at peace. And that is one of the qualifiers. That kind of discipline that will constitute you as a child of the Heavenly Father. It's a concept that sometimes we don't think about. And he, to, to, to illustrate how that God has set the example, Jesus says, For doesn't God cause the sun to rise on the evil and on the good? He in his wisdom is allowing the benefits of his creation to accrue to both the good and the evil. And he sends the rain on the just and on the unjust. And so the challenge is this, that if God can do that, and if we are to be his offspring or his children, then we ought also to be able to muster the courage and the self-discipline that we can love our enemies, bless them that curse us, and do good to them that hate you. Christ in another place said that a soft answer turneth away wrath. Have you ever tried it? You know, there's nothing that takes the steam out of an antagonist than to capitulate, if that's the word, to acknowledge that uh, he has justification maybe for being angry at you or maybe to hate you. You know, there's nothing that pulls the sting from somebody that's ready to give you the works than to say, yes, you're right, I'm wrong. Agree with thine adversary when thou art in the way. Why? That you might subdue his venom against you. And a soft answer does turn away rock. And if somebody realizes that you are not trying to reply in kind to his aggressiveness to you, you knock the feet right out from under him. He doesn't have a case. Personal experience will verify that if you've ever used that tool. Now, we have the highest example to follow in the cited example of God sending the sun and the rain on the just and the unjust. And the thought is carried on 
And Jesus says, if you love them that love you, what reward have you? Don't even these uh, publicans, the publican, of course, being a uh, tax car- uh, collector who was hated, and even among the hated people, they have those that they love. Uh, and if you salute your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the publicans the same? You see, what he's talking about is replying in kind. We, we, we looked at that briefly. We all respond to love. We all respond to decent treatment. We all react to the adverse. We all react to those who would try and recompense that which has been done to them. And there's nothing that takes away the impact of the purpose of your enemy to wipe you out, humiliate you, to fault, defraud you, and say all manner of evil against you than a mild, meek, submissive attitude. And this then is followed up by that verse which says, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Now, we as humans are going to say, well, that's a demand that none of us can meet. God is without flaw. God is the apex of perfection. What possible chance have we as members of this human race to attain to such a lofty concept and a lofty ambition? You know that it was the same command that God gave to Abraham. And in the 17th chapter, you remember at verse 1 in Genesis that God instructed Abraham well, this was what Abraham was 90 and 9 years old the Lord appeared unto Abraham and said I am almighty God walk before me and be thou perfect without flaw is what our understanding of perfection is as it is in the English but the alternate renderings to that are to be upright to be mature to be complete to be mature I think would probably be a better rendering for we humans it is possible for us to be mature and grown up it is childish to be one who would want to reciprocate to those things that were done in them or for against them evilly and it takes maturity to arise to completeness there's another thought according to the parable that Christ gave of the man who went on a far journey and gave certain talents 
and responsibilities to his uh, servants. He gave to one five talents, another two, and another one. The point is, he expected them to use these talents and increase in capacity by the trading or the working out of his purpose. He didn't expect a man with five talents to gain 250. He expected him to increase that five talents, five talents more. Now when the man worked to the fullness of the capacity that he had, he performed a hundred percent. And therefore, with his hundred percent production, he was in a sense perfect in that which was allotted to him to do. In that sense, using one's ability to harness and control with the abilities that we have been given, then we may be able to rise to that greatness of character when we can look on those who abuse us in a manner of compassion and understanding and forgiveness. I suggest those thoughts are there in addition to many others. And then we come to this sixth chapter. And here is where he begins to get to the meat or the nitty-gritty, as it were, of our human capacities or failings. In this chapter, he mentions the word hypocrite three times. And Chuck was good enough to give me his book on numbers. He tells me he's not a numerologist. Uh, it says three expresses and includes all relationships of mankind. And he said it is the sum of human capacity. So when the three times made reference to in here of the Pharisees in, in the group of people that he's talking to uh, as hypocrites, three times the word hypocrite is used. I said Pharisee. It, it, it's to indicate the humanness of the situation that he is addressing. Now he talks in this uh, first four verses about the giving of alms, doing good works. Boy, don't we like to do good works? You know, it, it, it's nice to go and uh, see the Pharisees in those days had it worked out to a real production. You know, uh, they let it be known that some great man among their group was going to make a donation to the poor and the indigent. So what did they do? They assembled quite a crowd and as this man came along with his bag of goodies that he was going to give to the poor, they sounded the trumpet, doo -doo -doo. here he comes, great man, boy, look at him, look what he's going to do. So he goes up and with great pomp and show, he puts the money in the bag for the poor. And uh, he says that because people say, my, wasn't he a great man? Look at how thoughtful and considerate he was for the poor. 
he, he gave some of his hard-earned cash and now the poor are going to be able to benefit from it. But Jesus says in this area, that man got all the reward he's going to get. He got some words spoken by men that, hey, he's a great guy. And he points out that if his followers are going to do good works, and they're expected to, they're to do it in secret. Now, what are some of the good works that we can do? Well, we could maybe help somebody that's uh, needing money. We can visit the fatherless and the widow. Do we do it quietly? Or, we, or do we do it like some I've heard who will say, uh, I was over to see Sister So-and-so, and, uh, you know, she tells me this. Uh, when we were visiting so-and-so, who is bedridden or so-and-so, with a problem, uh, she said that such and such. Now why does, the bother, why does the person bother to tell you that they were over to visit somebody if they don't want to be recognized for their good works? Think about it. You see, maybe the good works that we do when we flaunt, as it were, our accomplishments in, in being considerate of others, equivalent to alms, considerate of those that aren't able to maybe make it on their own or, or need to be helped, if people say, yeah, you know, that's a great person. They went around, they visited the sick, they were applying the principle that James spoke about. Yeah, they're all right. You know, that may be all the reward we'll ever get because we have flaunted our efforts before others. Now, I know none of you will ever do that. But it's a tendency for the human animal. Think about it. You said play acting. Let's go on with the play acting. When thou prayest, don't be as the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogue and in the corners of the street, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they shall have their reward. And then he goes on to say that just as we are to do good works quietly without fanfare and without expecting anything from our efforts in this life he goes on to say when thou prayest enter into thy closet and shut up the door and pray unto thy father and thy father which heareth thee in secret will reward thee openly I know that in our services it is necessary because of the way our society, our community is organized to make public prayers. And I know that brethren have to come to the front so that the benefit of their words may be transmitted to all in this hall who cannot hear them otherwise. I appreciate that public prayer is part of our service to the Lord. A brother speaks on behalf of the community. So in fact there is nothing wrong with prayer 
because we are told both by Jesus that we should and that Paul says pray without ceasing. So the injunction to pray is a requirement. But how do we pray? Jesus says when you pray, don't use vain repetition as the brethren do. As they, pardon me, as the heathens do. For they... <laughs> Was that a Freudian slip? Uh, that's terrific. They think that they might be heard for their much speaking. Be ye not therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things you have need of before you ask him. And of course, the traditional prayer that is illustrated later in Jesus' teaching of the Pharisee and the publican. The publican stood up and said, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not as other men are. And uh, the publican says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I think in that injunction of Jesus' teaching, he's implying an attitude that is necessary in having or making acceptable prayer. Now what about us? I've already set the premise that public prayer in our community is an accepted practice. But I don't know whether you're like me or not. But I'm getting the impression as the older I get either I'm less, less patient or the brethren who offer prayer feel that they have to say a lot more uh, I sometimes get the impression from some of the prayers that are offered in our community that the brother giving the prayer seems to think that he must touch every one of the points of our faith or that he must make a summary of all the activities that have gone on immediately before in the service you sometimes get the impression and I guess this is my crude way of saying it that they're afraid that maybe God won't hear them if they don't speak long and cover all the points it may seem flippant on my part to suggest that some of our prayers would indicate that we're concerned that God would get the message. We often repeat ourselves within a prayer. Jesus is suggesting both here and other areas that when we stand before the Creator, our prayers ought to be succinct, to the point, directed to what they are intended to do in giving thanks and then acknowledge that it is through our mediator and sit down some of you may object to what I'm saying uh, but I'm one of my hobbies is people watching it's quite a hobby you know we've got bird watchers we've got other kind of watchers but to me people watching is intriguing and when I watch people you'd be surprised the messages you get from body language 
and oftentimes in the language you read from the individual you realize that what they are doing is that they might receive their reward now that they might be heard for their much speaking that they might be seen of men and be recognized as one with great knowledge and understanding and capacity of recall and the you know I can't get into the heads of other people I don't know how they think but oftentimes how they think is transmitted by what they say what they do and how they carry themselves and show it in their body language now I suggest this as something for all of us to think about I'm not immune to it my wife has said to me justly so uh, you know you're getting pretty long-winded and uh, I concur we often get carried away in our enthusiasm but remember to whom our prayers are being addressed it is the creator of the heaven and the earth it is the all-wise and understanding God and as Jesus says before we even open our mouths he knows what we need and so maybe we ought to be thinking in the brevity of the prayer of the man that was justified Lord have mercy on me a sinner Jesus goes on in his instructions and he tells us that we ought to pray in this manner and he gives us the Lord's Prayer now obviously as you know this prayer is worthy of a week's study a month's study a lifetime of study in its, in its impact in its remarkable brevity in expressing in sequence I believe the important things that ought to be considered in prayer and of course the first thing is an acknowledgement of the greatness of God hallowed is his name and the hallowed attitude we ought to have when we come before him and of course the great purpose of God's creation is to establish on this earth his kingdom of peace in which the praise of men will redound to his name and the will of God to be done on earth as it is in heaven you know that, that bears a little bit of thought or a comment we pray that God's will may be done on earth as it is in heaven we read in Daniel that God rules in the kingdoms of men and sets up over men the, or over kings the basis of men God's will is being done in the earth now our brothers in their talks relating to the alignment of nations he is accomplishing his purpose in assembling the nations of the world so that they will be in proper alignment in the day when his son will return to this earth to execute judgment but what Jesus is inferring here is that God's will might be done by men in the earth which is exactly opposite to what is being done now when the judgments of the Lord are in the earth then 
we will, or men will learn righteousness. When finally the mind of God is in the mind of those of the redeemed, his will will truly be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then he says, you don't ask amiss if you ask for daily maintenance. You know, God put us on this earth, if I can use that expression. Uh, and therefore, he is willing to maintain us. And so to ask for one's daily bread is certainly within the bounds of reality. And of course, it acknowledges that God is the source of our maintenance. And we do this in our prayers for the food. He also sets the standard of which he spoke about in the Beatitudes when he said, uh, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, or uh, be merciful unto us, because we hope to extend mercy to others on the basis of our capacity to love our enemies and forgive them that despitefully use us reward us in kind and be with us or lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil because all of us live in an environment and in a situation where evil is always present with us and it takes the strongest of efforts and the, on our behalf to be able to overcome these tendencies of the flesh that we're all blighted with. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. That is the great wish of all who would tender a prayer to God. That his kingdom and his power and his glory might be made known to all. Again he comes back in verse 14 to talk about the trespass. We've, we've actually spoken about it in, in, uh, in the things that we said in relation to mercy. And then he comes on to the matter of the 16th verse where he's talking about fasting. Now in the East or in the Jewish system, fasting was uh, an act that was to show one's desire to acknowledge a period of concentration on God. It's been said that those that fast are able to think more clearly and more uh, loftily than those that don't fast. They, they say if your system's cluttered up with food, you can't think. An illustration of it is you don't think very well after a big meal. You want to go to sleep. So the idea behind fasting was also uh, to be able to think clearly and as an acknowledgement of a of a self-imposed infliction on one in, in a uh, way of hallowing God. Now, he says that if this is the uh, thing which you decide to do, and of course we don't fast today, but we may do things that are similar, he says that if you are making a sacrifice for the Lord, which is indicated in the fasting, don't go around demonstrating it. Don't make a great long face in the case of fasting and uh, go around holding your stomach about how hungry you are. 
Because if you have done this, that it would be an acknowledgement on your part of the benefits that you receive from God and want to think more soberly in those things, well, fine, it's between you and God. Don't make a big show about it. Now, I suppose we could think of illustrations in our lives where we might have things that we make sacrifices for the Lord. Am I doing something wrong with this? You know, uh, we might be called upon to do something in the meeting, in our home ecclesia, a, a work for the Lord. Remember, we're talking about attitudes in this whole general concept. If the attitude of doing something for the Lord is to show how much agony it's putting us through, those that see us in agony will acknowledge that, man, this fellow is doing a great service. If our intent is to serve God and acknowledge to Him our indebtedness to Him and maybe afflict ourselves for it, it's between He and ourselves. We don't want to make a big show. We should not want to make a big show that men might see how great we are. Let me tell you, that's a, a hard thing to fight against. You know, if we have a relative degree of success in the service of the Lord, or even in our day-to-day -day activities, one of the hardest things in life to fight is success. Because it feeds upon pride, or pride is a, a result of success, or could be. In the case of the fasting, it is a way that was used in those days to acknowledge the benefits that we, they had received from their father, or from God. And the consequence of it is that in acknowledging the benefits from God, don't make a pretentious show before men, but rather between you and your father. The matter of doing service in our meeting that we agonize over, it's pretty hard sometimes not to transmit this agony that we go through. Uh, if, if we flaunt it, then we are doing a disservice to ourselves and to God. We're wanting to be seen by men how much of an effort we're putting out in our service to God. And in doing that, we run amiss with a wrong attitude. Now, from the 19th verse down to the 34th, Jesus begins on a series of very salient points that bear, as it were, what our true attitudes are. For he is really hitting the humanness, if I can put it that way, 
of our characters. He's talking about treasures, our value system. He's talking about where we place our values. He's inferred in the early part of this chapter that oftentimes our value of the esteem of men is put out of proportion and we do service to the Creator that we might be seen of men. Then he says, this could very readily show what is in the heart and the intent of the individual. When he is talking about laying up treasures on earth, where neither moth and rust doth corrupt, where thieves break, are not able to break through and steal, he says what our intent ought to be, that we should establish a treasure in heaven where none of the affairs of this life can interfere with. For where your treasure is, there is your heart also. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. By your speech, you are betrayed. That was used, of course, in relation to the accent that distinguished uh, another well, one of the apostles at the time of the crucifixion. But the implication is that as a man thinks, he speaks. And that which is most important in his estimation is the thing that he is most likely to speak about. For where your treasure is, there is your thought, or there is your heart. Now, how does that affect us as individuals? How does that affect us in our day-to-day -day service of our Father? In relation to the premise that Jesus was teaching, that those who were to be acceptable to him had to harness the impulses of the flesh and so control themselves that they would put set their prerogatives correctly. Where does our treasures lie? Well, they ought to lie in our Creator and His service and in those things that relate to His work. But how many times in our day-to-day -day living do we get cluttered up with the affairs of this world and the deceitfulness of riches? How often do those occasions interfere with our service to the Lord? Does this interference represent where our treasure is? The here and now is a, is a problem we all face. And it is by discipline mentally that we are able to get our perspective right. Jesus in the latter part of this chapter says for our duty is to seek first the kingdom of God and all the affairs of this life which relate to our priorities will be put in their proper perspective. You notice in the prayer that he gave he didn't say it was wrong 
to pray for the necessities of life. The big trick is to find out in our minds what are necessities. And so he continues that by the transmission of our efforts indicate the things wherein our greatest interest lies. If we're disciplined to serve him as Jesus is suggesting in this sermon, then it will be reflected in the things we do and say. Our time is gone.